Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Pincount, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Hi Ian. Well, we've had a bit of a break between you going on honeymoon and me being ill for a while. Yeah, you're ill with a sore throat, was it? You. Um, it's a sore throat, but it's still lingering, and that's been nearly two months now. So, um... so I've got the solution. I've got the solution. Um, have you seen this uh, liarbird.ai stuff? Yes. It's um, so we discussed this thing on maybe the very first episode. We talked about um, oh, let's just chain a neural net on us and generate a podcast, right? Yep. And that's basically what someone's done. They they're they've not released their APIs yet. Trained a neural network to synthesize speech, and then it's like doing um. I've not seen the implementation details, but you know, like the style transfer stuff you get for images, where you yeah you convert yeah. an image into the style of another painting or something. Um, it's basically that for speech, so you can uh, make people say whatever you want them to say. So that sounds like it could be quite useful. Um, I'll look forward to that the next time I've got a sore throat. I've put in a link. The link I've put in is a Twitter link because if you look at that conversation, you see there's a link uh, further down in it from Matt Gallagher about uh, Voco, which is uh, Adobe's similar technology for basically Photoshop for uh, speech. speech. Yep. Um, it's pretty cool. Anyway, that's a, a bit of an aside. Uh, do we have any other follow-up? Um, so based on our last episode, which we got lots of good feedback about how approachable it was, um, I'm going to suggest that people also read a series about AI literacy written by Lisa Daly. Um, on uh, worldwritable.com we'll put the link in the show notes but basically it's uh, it's going to be a series of blog posts that are a sort of approachable introduction to AI and the concepts and the first post is a really good read yeah I mean the conceit is that AI is becoming ever more important and people should know about it and know what it means and what sort of things are and that's kind of very much the same sort of spirit that um, last week last week that's ambitious the last episode came out of Um, so yeah to go and have a read um is that is that us for follow up? Is this new topics now? I think that's sort of, yeah, that's it for follow up. Yeah. New topics. Okay, so I think we've got a bit of a mismatch of news that we wanted to chat about with each other, basically, and you can all listen because <laughs> we've been off the air for a while. And then I think uh, next time we'll do a bit more of a focused topic uh, episode where we'll talk about pro computers. So if, if you have any thoughts on that, uh, wrong on the internet at pinkcountpodcast.com. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, basically people have been wrong on the internet so we're going to talk about it (laughs) okay so the first item was uh, some news about a japanese uh, ai framework chainer this is which is yeah it's been around a wee while but not hugely popular like um, tensorflow or cafe or torch yeah i've not seen much press about this at all i think this is one of the first times that this is a, a article in the register the first time i'd seen it uh, mentioned or at least paid attention to it um, they show off some benchmarks where it's pretty fast compared to the competition um, I was going to say pretty but that's a bit strong um, it's probably a well chosen benchmark is what I would it's think. old TensorFlow versions is what I would say Okay, it's uh, 0.12 and 0.11 I've put a link in the notes there about uh, for the source data for that register article and they go into um, really quite good detail on exactly their software version setup and so on and yeah exactly they did benchmarking um the interesting thing here is that you're saying old tensorflow versions i think that in some of the early episodes we talked about how tensorflow was perhaps slower than some of its competition but since then it seems to have got a lot quicker from what i've seen yeah that's changed a lot um although i will say likewise mxnet is showing very good scaling recently and as a kind of more general point this stuff is all 
Um, this is all new. It's the Wild West out there. There's a lot of people yeah. putting a lot of effort and a lot of investment into what is a very new field, and um, it all changes very rapidly. And to some extent, it depends what you do. So, I mean, I'd say, like like any, like choosing any software tool, there's no there's no right solution for a particular task. I mean, some if you're doing RNN, some networks are some uh, sorry frameworks are more suitable than others. If you're doing CNN, some are more suitable. It depends if you've got a research versus a production setup. Are you deploying in the data center? Are you deploying to mobile devices? You know, there's there's all kinds of things to consider, and it's not it's not a case of a. Uh, it's like saying, oh, just pick the best programming language. That's obviously whatever, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit like you see comparisons of uh, web frameworks and. Um, the current one is um, virtual DOMs for front-end JavaScript frameworks where they're comparing the speed of them. But when you look at the speed of you, any of the frameworks compared to the speed of the code, the sort of domain-specific code that a developer might write using these frameworks, the frameworks are a tiny proportion of the total runtime, so often it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, so I will say choice of framework for a neural network work does matter. Um, but it matters depending on your objectives, like that, yeah, like I just yeah. said. Um, if you're doing research, you'd have different choices from if you're deploying for production. Um, maybe yeah, what I'm saying it. is that performance isn't the number one critical factor when choosing a framework. So you've got something else in here that you're saying is follow-up, talking about the AMD Naples server chips, is that right? Yeah, so two episodes ago we talked about the Ryzen 7 uh, CPUs from AMD and I said it would be quite exciting to see if they bring a similar level of performance and price performance to the server arena. And the last Opteron chips are updated in 2012, I think, or 2013. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Well, shortly after we recorded that episode, um, AMD made an announcement about their sort of server plans. They've got 32-core Naples chips, they're called. It's Naples CPUs. Um, for one socket and two socket servers, and they're coming in Q2, so I guess we'll get more announcements about that sometime soon. Oh, well, I just spotted 128 PCI Express lanes for the system in a dual socket system. That's that's quite nice. Yeah, their architecture is quite interesting. I think we touched on the sort of modules inside a on a single CPU die on the Ryzen Seven. These have four modules per CPU die. Um, so if you've got 32 cores you're going to end or yeah 32 cores you're going to end up with four eight core modules and then the 128 lanes i think 64 of them are taken up by inter cpu communication in a dual socket setup so what's interestingly missing from here especially as you alluded about price is any mention of uh, power consumption and that is obviously the major price driver for large-scale use yeah, I imagine because the customers you want to get are your Facebooks, your Microsofts, we'll talk about both of them later on, um, Amazon's Apple, that sort of thing, where they're buying like tens of thousands of CPUs all at once, they must be fitting into the standard power envelopes of the um, custom servers that people are using now. There's no way they could go out on a limb and have something that's crazy powerful and then not be able to sell it. Yeah, that's that's interesting then because, yeah, their uh, performance per watt has not been as good as Intel, but yeah, benchmarks are way interesting. And yeah. speaking of, like you mentioned, the Ryzen 5s, is um, benchmarks out for them now as well. Uh, have, you, have you seen that? Have you looked at them at all? Uh, I had a read through the Anantech review when it came out. Um, price to performance compared to the Intel i5s are very, very impressive. It basically doesn't look that bad on single thread, in pound for pound sort of thing. Yeah. And then on multi-threaded stuff, because you've got SMT as well, where the mid-range i5s don't, you've got 12 threads versus 4 threads. So multi-threaded stuff, they do very well. I mean, 
the H264 encode times jumped out at me. 32 frames a second compared to 25 on the i5. Yeah, these have definitely come on my radar. I use a bunch of boxes with um, i5 CPUs in them for encoding because they're like the best bang for the buck. Um, this might actually change that and make the AMDs the best option the next time I have to replace these boxes. So uh, I've definitely been looking at these with interest. Looking forward to seeing what AMD can do with their optimizations as well. Price performance is a tricky thing because Intel can, if Intel have the performance, they can obviously compete by adjusting their price. So yeah, yeah, um, and its complete system price matters a lot as well. So it's interesting things there. Um, I just realised I've put another bit of follow-up in here, kind of in the wrong place. Um, this, this kind of cropped up during uh, Mobile World Congress. I saw this tweet from Rafe Blanford. Um, and it was interesting because he, he's demoing a Sony Xperia XZ Premium. And this contains that, uh, this is an actual device with that image sensor chip we talked about on a previous episode with the very fast readout. Yep. Enabling super slow motion. Yeah. Um, I also speculated it's good for not having jelly shutter and things like that. Yeah, it's impressive to see this in a device so soon when we speculated that we might not see it in a device for quite a, quite a period of time. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite cool. It's, it, I mean, it's cool technology. I, as I say, I think the real um, the real benefits are the fast readout rather than the um, uh, high frame rate shooting, but yeah, we'll see what, what comes of that. Yeah. So kind of keeping on the server theme from the Ryzen stuff, you've got some interesting posts that I hadn't seen before in here that I was just looking at earlier about Facebook refreshing their servers. Yeah, so Facebook, um, it's all custom servers. They don't buy servers off the shelf. They don't. They don't have like a, a standard one new server, um, or a you know a one new two new server. They build everything themselves. Um, they publish all the specifications on the Open Compute Project site, and this is basically an end. They call it an end-to-end refresh of their entire server hardware fleet, um, and it's basically an. An iteration on their their box designs, but also some new designs as well. So they've got new designs for like their storage servers, their um, their modules that take CPUs, and their uh, GPU compute servers as well. It's, it's, the post isn't super in depth. It shows you pictures of them. It's quite interesting. Um, but they do publish the full specs. I find it very interesting because this is so different from consumer computer hardware. Or, or even even fairly high end um, professional workstation stuff I use, which is similar in a lot of way in terms of the CPUs and the amounts of RAM and things like that. But then, just the physical uh, architecture of these is very very different. And yeah, when we talked about Amazon's new announcements a few episodes back, they had a compute server where it only had like a couple of CPU sockets and nothing else in the box, and we were saying that's that seems a bit odd when you you'd think you'd go for maximum density when you look at these Facebook um, open compute. Devices, they're quite similar. Where it, there, there's times they make the trade-off between you know how much power is available in the rack and also what sort of density they want in it for a given purpose. Yeah, especially with the, they have that in the NVMe article as well. They um, talk about targeting a particular wattage per chip, which is you know lower than typical. Yeah, it also includes the phrase "surprise hot removal," which I enjoy. Yeah, I, th- I think that's just human proofing. So this yeah. Is, yeah, this is them talking about being able to remove. Um, modules or individual SSDs from an uh, an array and have it not fall over, which sounds really nice from my point of view. Yeah, yeah and you've you've also got an article in here about um, Microsoft's open compute efforts. Yeah, so this is this is the exactly the same sort of thing. They've got a different um side to the open compute project, them and Facebook and a few other people share um hardware specifications and ideas and it was a leak of this 
um, Project Olympus it's called from Microsoft uh, we talked about in episode 6 where they had the LG A3647 socket which is going to be the new high end Xeon socket it's currently used by the Xeon 5s um, and this is an Antec with more information about it these look a lot more like standard server boxes pizza boxes yeah quite empty at the back it's just different trade-offs in regard to space and density. Yeah, so it's quite cool. It's quite interesting to see all this stuff. So if anyone, if you're used to consumer computers, go and click through some of these links and just look at the pictures. It's just uh, interesting how different a thing these sorts of computers are. Yeah, and one of the things Microsoft actually have here is they've got a collaboration with NVIDIA to bring the NVIDIA GPU accelerator modules uh, and put them in the Microsoft server chassis so you don't just have to buy a, was it a DGX1. Um, you can buy just the accelerators on their own and um, put them in these Microsoft boxes. Okay, so the next thing I guess is kind of related is Intel's 3D Crosspoint SSDs, their Optane branded SSDs are out now in both server and consumer form and got a few links here to articles about them have you been looking at the benchmarks for these They're quite yeah so i've been looking at uh, looking at this a bit because obviously it's i love fast storage um the, on the consumer side i find it's a bit underwhelming um today I mean, the, the embargo lifted on the sort of 32 gigabyte um, caching module that the, the intel are selling which is designed to in their own literature cache in front of a you know, a hard disk, a spinning disk. I guess that's just kind of boring because we're not. I mean, I've not had a spinning hard drive computer in years, so. Yeah, you know, I think it's so. It's kind of interesting because it only works with KB Lake, so you need to have the newest and most modern motherboards and CPUs to actually use this. But then you're buying a machine that's got a spinning disk on it, um, and they compared Linus Tech Tips had a video this morning with the benchmarks, and Anantech have got an article as well. But Linus Tech Tips did the interesting thing where they put the cache in front of an SSD and found it gave almost no speed up, um, suggesting mm-hmm. that in the consumer size you don't get much of a, a boost over a standard SSD. The speed up as a caching technology was very good. Yes, it was good as a, a caching technology. There's been a bit of. Um, What's the word? Controversy um, amongst uh, about Intel's press regarding this and who releases press on it and whether Intel are living up to their own hype from a couple of years ago. Um, I'll put a link about that um, in the show notes. But certainly the enterprise PCIe SSDs designed for putting in servers and high-end workstations, they are showing some really promising performance. And this might just be a case of there's enough capacity to spread rights across lots of silicon and that's where you get the, you get a big boost from uh, 3dx point um, some of the benchmarks showed small object size read and writes which is what you want for t- a lot of typical server loads yeah for a lot of server loads databases and such like were really really good compared to standard intel and non-intel ssd so that's looking really promising i'm actually the consumer stuff I, i'm not really bothered about that there's not much there for me the enterprise stuff is yeah i'm getting my checkbook out these look really good. They are very expensive just now, though. Yeah, I mean, I've got uh, my work machine has a couple of the previous generation of Intel's PCI Express SSD cards, and they are pretty good. Um, but these are these are another level again for, as you say, the small small data transfers. Yeah. Um, okay, so this next thing, I, I remember um, reading about this before briefly. Do you want to summarize what you've been doing some experiments here? Yeah, so I'll I'll have a go at pronouncing this. This is uh, <laughs> at least you're neatly avoiding it. Uh, Google's Gutzli, G-U-E-T-Z-L-I, and it's a new open source JPEG encoder. And the important thing here is it's a perceptual JPEG encoder. Uh, we've talked about perceptual encoding in the past in regards to the video, and we've talked about video, and it's 
using the maximum compression where the human eye is least likely to notice it, thus by you know getting the maximum quality where the image still looks perfect to the human eye. Um, and Google released the the encoder and a, a version of it you can actually run yourself. The results are quite impressive. I took a um, compressed image, a large compressed image that I already had lying about that had been run through uh, image optims, the standard optimization techniques applied. Ran it through the Gutzli encoder. Only went from 3.8 to 3.2 megabytes, but that's on an already compressed image. Um, so it is quite impressive if you I mean, I, I run or I handle like millions of images. So, you know, that sort of saving across millions of images is actually quite a lot of storage. Um, and also transfer, if you're transferring to lots of people, you save a lot. The downside just now is the performance of it isn't great. To do that um, encoding took nearly, well, did the calculation, 15 minutes and consumed three gigabytes of memory. For one file? For, for one, yeah, less than four meg file. Wow. It's just the way that there's no optimization in the, the algorithm just now or in the implementation of the algorithm. So hopefully that will come and that will get a bit faster and um, a bit more frugal on the memory usage. Okay, so I mean, we've got another few things here that are loosely categorized as Google is doing interesting things. So um, you've put in some links here about the uh, week or so back, the Google finally released um, benchmarks and more implementation details of their TPU. This is their tensor processing unit. Yeah, so this is um, Google's... We, we speculated they might have something like this, and th- this is the confirmation that they do, and it's custom silicon for running TensorFlow on their own servers. One of the annoyances you have is that every time Google has an article about TensorFlow, you read it and think this is really impressive, and then they tell you they've run it on a 1,000 GPUs. Well, this device is just going to make that worse because this is something they have that we can't have, perhaps? Or well, 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 well. If you look at Google's cloud offerings for running your, mo- your TensorFlow models, they don't tell you what hardware it runs on. They just um, charge you with some slightly opaque pricing model um, as per usual for a any cloud service so they, they could be using it to serve customer demand you just don't know yeah um because okay to give a like what's special about it is maybe something you're wondering it's not out and out performance nvidia still win there but then again they're comparing three-year-old tpu designs against modern gpus there um it's not for training which is where you need um a huge amount of power to you know crunch the images for weeks at a time this is for the deployment side this is for inference and it's not out and out performance again, but it's performance per watt. And even compared to current, um, the sort of low memory, lower memory NVIDIA GPUs that you'd use for inference in the data center. Google's solution here is something like eight, eight to ten times more efficient in terms of, you know, how many infer- how much inference can you run per watt? And that's a big deal at the scale that Google are dealing with. Yeah, they're uh, they're putting thousands or tens of tens of thousands of these across their server fleet to do all sorts of work. I can see, yeah. like I said earlier, like a you, you, like power power is really important to the big players like Google, and this could be a, a huge saving for them, even if they never release this to the public or to other vendors. Yeah, and kind of continuing the Google doing interesting things theme. Did you see that um, this very like little thing that uh, Dan Liu pointing out that Google are making n- nicks now? Yeah, so I've been previously very excited on this podcast about uh, Amazon's custom network network interface cards. I can't remember the actual name they give for them and their performance. And this is Google doing the same thing. Again, this is just the sort of 
secret sauce optimization that all these platforms are going to do to get the maximum bang for their buck um, in terms of perform usually well performance per watt and then just in the case of networking just performance on a device it's a sin that google are doing the same thing this is a a photo from blurry cam that could literally be anything so i kind of pull out here because i've just been reading up on this stuff and it's interesting um ahead of the kind of pro computers episode we're planning we're doing a bit of research and i started looking into thunderbolt 3 and oh my word what like it's hugely flexible and there's some things about thunderbolt 3 that's amazing having used a modern thunderbolt 3 device for work recently it's, it's brilliant but then it's super flexible but it's also a massive omni shambles in, in like compatibility and like you almost have no idea what you're getting for any given port um, yeah the USB-C connector, the small little connector, can have lots of different things over it. Do you want to have a go at trying to give like a, a reasonably exhaustive list of the what type of signals might be coming out of that port? Yeah, so I had I remember seeing an article about this a while ago. Yeah, just see if you can remember. Yeah, how much of a sort of disaster for normal consumers that that, that port is. So what 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 could be over that port? Let's see if you can get them all, and I'll see if I can name any you forget. USB, PCI. Or USB, USB. What flavors of USB? Come on. Oh, well, they're probably going to try and do as many. So it's going to, I reckon they're going to start at like two point one, the two point one, three, three point one. Right. All of the ports, all of them will do USB two. All of them will do USB three. They will not all do USB three point one. Okay. <laughs> what What else do you get out of there? So like Display Port. Ah, what oh. version of Display Port? Ah, that. Three, <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. What else? Uh, I guess is Thunderbolt actually a? Do they have a? You can do Thunderbolt to Thunderbolt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Th- Thunderbolt PCI, they're then going to get like. Um, oh, PCIe. So about how many lanes? Uh, four or eight, depending on the setup. Two or four. Or two or four. Uh. And do you get full bandwidth each way? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? It depends, <laughs> it depends yeah. on both ends. I suppose. What, what else do you get over over there? Ah, uh, there must be like audio stuff. Um, yeah. What else? What else? Um, some sort of lower level display stuff than yeah VGA you get some yeah. VGA you get VGA <laughs> you oh. get VGA um, what else oh I might start running out of things now Ethernet um, you can get Ethernet um, storage protocols I don't know if you get storage protocols you get Ethernet um, you get HDMI oh. and you get some interesting things if you connect because I was playing around with some Thunderbolt adapt- Thunderbolt to HDMI adapters they actually show up so connecting over an HDMI cable to a monitor via Thunderbolt adapter right got this mm-hmm. then it presents as far as NVIDIA drivers are concerned in this particular implementation more on that in a second as a display port connection to the screen <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah, so why did I get into all this? Well, I was reading... Um, there's a interesting site, eGPU.io, and they've got a lot of information about running external GPUs um, hooked up by Thunderbolt connections, right? Because uh, potentially you've got four PCI Express lanes, which is plenty for running a GPU these days, if you get all four and if you get all the bandwidth. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, it, and we, talked pre- we talked previously. In fact, it's been relatively big news recently that uh, nvidia have released mac drivers for pascal gpus yeah back uh, in episode it, nine we actually talked about them having um adverts out to actually hire people and this yeah. would look like what they were doing with that yeah so anyway so i was looking at the benchmarks for it and uh, there was an offhand mentioning about in the article about how different thunderbolt implementations are better than others for external gpus and i started looking into this and i uh, came across this as interesting um Dell chart, which is for all the Dell laptops that have Thunderbolt, how many PCI Express lanes do you get? 
Yep. You see, Summer 2 and Summer 4, it, it varies. It also depends on the port you plug it into in some cases. There's a nice little chart down there that tells you what version of various connections you get. So you'll notice you get HDMI 1.4, which means you can't get 4K 60 hertz. But if it's a mini display port, you can, you can get 4K 60 hertz. Yeah, I've just seen this table and I want to throw my laptop out the window. <laughs> Pop quiz, write in anyone that's got an answer. If I'm connecting with an HDMI cable through an HDMI to Thunderbolt adapter to an HDMI input on a monitor, but the NVIDIA driver tells me I'm get, making a DisplayPort 1.2 connection, what's my maximum resolution? Oh. I have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and then um, there's this other article I found, which is also an interesting aside. Actually, I'll, I'll leave this one for a moment. But this is um, another thing where it depends which port you plug into. And so this is someone talking about how on particular Alienware laptops, it's the internal integrated GPU that is connected to the display outputs over USB-C because it's coming off the chipset. But if you plug into the display port or the HDMI cables, you're connected directly to the discrete graphics card. Okay. So they were having problems driving monitors. But the interesting thing here is this is probably to do with the newer implementations of Optimus. So um, prior multiple GPU setups where you've got the discrete and integrated GPU, they could effectively have a switch to which one's driving the display, right? Yep. Um, how it works on modern laptops is the integrated GPU is always driving the display and the discrete GPU just swaps its frame buffer. Uh-huh. Uh, just writes into its frame buffer so they're actually both always running if you're running the discrete GPU so that must be how this is supposed to work in these alien wars but the other interesting thing is on Dell Precisions this is not the case you're connected to the discrete GPU and you plug in like that so yeah that's uh, two machines that seem fairly similar specs from the same manufacturer and they behave differently in that respect anyway to return to the original point that I thought was interesting it's obviously, well, probably obviously, it needs some more investigation, but they've got some interesting benchmark numbers of external GPUs hooked up to a Mac. And they're testing with a Radeon Pro 450, that's the inbuilt MacBook Pro current uh, GPU, and then an external uh, 980 Ti, a 1080 Ti, and then a 1080 Ti driving an external display rather than the, rather than um, swapping into the frame buffer back into the laptop, yeah? Yep. Um, the obvious missing numbers here, you think, oh, where's the 980 Ti driving the external display? Uh, and I've put a link in there that's got those numbers. Okay. And it's interesting that the 1080 Ti is not perform- it's barely performing better than the 980. Which it's is... Li- uh, must be limited on PCI bandwidth. That well, must be. yeah, in some way. It's a bit odd, because I wouldn't have thought... I'd really like to see some synthetic benchmarks or maybe some deep learning work where all this, once all the data is loaded on the card, it's not hitting the bus. Yeah. To see what that's like, that's just made me even more curious. Or is it just yet more um, PCI Express oddness going on here? Mm. All this oddness does explain why they'll have a dedicated um, port on the back of their Alienwares for their their external GPU box. Which I think, what I think it is doing, based on their description, is effectively uh, switching the internal discrete GPU off and connecting those lanes directly to the external box. Yeah, I mean, having a, a dedicated port for it could be as much user experience. You know, if you if you don't plug into this port, you're not going to get the full performance kind of thing, rather than having people worry about which port gets the two lanes and which port gets the four lanes. Yeah, but then they, they sell it as you will always get four lanes, definitely. Always four lanes, all the bandwidth for the GPU if you use their special, their special, special sauce. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, I mean, that could literally be a sticker. Interesting stuff, um, but 
I don't know. In general, Thunderbolt is cool. It's one universal port that does everything. But then the problem is, it's one port that does everything. Yeah, I've got lots of experience with original Thunderbolt and Thunderbolt two devices, mostly for storage, um, um, external hard disks, SSDs, and then PCI SSDs, and it can be the greatest and the most frustrating thing ever. Um, that's because if you look at the cables, they fall out. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely one of the biggest ones. If you move the laptop and the PCI loses connection for a, like. A, uh, some very small period of time, like the hard, you know, the hard disk you're connected to, the, the volume you're connected to drops off the desktop, and you get a warning message, and you may lose some work. Um, oh, I, I just realised I, for, I forgot another type of USB that you can get out of a Thunderbolt <laughs> three port. Um, the difference between USB three and USB three power share. If it's just a USB three connection is negotiated, you can have five volts at nine hundred milliamps peaking at two amps for a peak. But if it's USB PowerShare spec, then you can get two amps all the time. Right. See, consumers just aren't going to care about this. And Generation 3 USB Type-C Thunderbolt, you can get 60 watts out of it. Yeah, it's total madness. Yeah, those tables on the Dell site are upsetting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, it's made me realise you you can't trust any Thunderbolt port. No. (laughs) Thanks for listening to PinCount. Show notes are online at pincountpodcast.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Douglas F. Shearer and Ian on Twitter at the underscore accidental. You can follow the show at Pincount Podcast. We'd love to get your feedback. Tweet us or use the hashtag AskPincount or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. For longer feedback, or if you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the API up documentation and CAD drawings, email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. Why, why is there an entry in the after show that just says AI bitches? I think you put that in. Did I? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What what's the, what are these other ones? So the first one is um, a few weeks ago we talked about um, what um, programming languages or what yeah what programming languages people look up related questions on Stack Overflow on the weekends and during the day and noted that some programming languages are more interesting at night than they were oh, during the day. Just, yeah. Um, and this is um, similar Stack Over or Stack Overflow's annual survey. Um, they do it every year. They release the results for everyone to see. One of the questions is how how do you pronounce the image format spelled out G I F? What what do you go with? I'd go with GIF. Yeah, GIF, hard G. Yeah, like GIFT. Yeah. They've got, and then there's some people go with soft G, like GIF. So hard hard G was sixty five percent. Obviously, all the great obviously. people in the world. Uh, and soft G was 26%. <laughs> and then there was people enunciating each letter, I suppose, like I did at the start of this, G-E-F. And then some other way, which I would very much like to know what it is, was 2% of the people. Right, and then, um, what's this April Fool's? I've not actually looked at this yet. So this was just someone's, this was the best April, <laughs> April Fool's joke I saw on the yeah. 1st of January. I mean, um Corporate April Fools tend to be terrible and they've kind of ruined the whole day with stuff like this. This was someone with a news article saying that uh, the, the, the title is NVIDIA and AMD come clean. We just make the same graphics card and then just paint it red or green. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, finally talking of um, surveys and programming and things, you've got this link to the eigenvector of, why, of moving from one language to another. Yeah, so this was someone who took the data or took data from blog posts submitted to Hacker News, I think. Um mm-hmm. I would need to or it was a good it was a query on Google. 
and they looked for blog posts that had the form why we switched from language X to language Y. Um, and then they plotted that in a 2D chart with each of the languages across the top and down the side to see which languages people most commonly switched from and to, or, or at least or at least wrote articles about it. Yeah, so it's using it's using the eigenvector as a, basically a predictor of future probability of a language as according to who's swap, swapping to what. I mean, read the article for the details. But the interesting thing is, it's just it's basically telling me. I mean, you, you code a lot of Ruby, so um, apparently you're going to end up coding Go. But then, when you code Go, you're going to end up uh, coding Rust, and then you're going to be coding Go again. So, yeah, yeah, I think that yeah, that would have been the interesting thing to work out: either what language people end up at, or what the Y combinator of the languages is. Is that the right phrase? Yeah. Uh, yes, what the static I... state of the languages is? Yeah, that's a that's a Y combinator. Well, if, if you're talking about the, the average, which ones you're going to? You're wanting weighted averages. You're wanting F measures. Okay. But um, or harmonic means. Um, I'm Python. I'm, we're all going to be coding Go. That's basically my take-home message from this presentation. Yeah, that's that certainly seems to be my takeaway. Um, so yeah, um, I'll um, get started. Java is Java is pretty popular, but only if you're coming from COBOL, Kotlin, or uh, Scala. Yeah, that would be. A, I'd imagine that's pretty popular in like say the banking sectors where they're moving older code along, and they've got already got lots of stuff on the GVM, so it makes sense to move older stuff to Java where they already know how to run and monitor it. 